Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. We're continuing with our series in Paul's letter to the Philippian believers, which we have entitled Turning Toward Joy, Discovering a Joy That Circumstances Cannot Change. And we are looking specifically here in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, at the joy of humility. Let's pray as we begin to consider these verses together. Our Father, we thank you for the privilege of opening your word, and we ask that you would please teach us. We pray for our children as they are meeting in another part of our building this morning, and we just ask that you would richly bless those who are teaching, and we pray for each one of our children that they would understand the truths of your word and allow your spirit to apply them to their lives. And Lord, what we pray for them, we pray for ourselves. Give us understanding, and ask, we do ask that your Holy Spirit not only give us understanding, but apply these truths to us and help us to really not only understand, but apply them to our daily lives. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Last week we looked together in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, at what Paul presents as five characteristics of genuine faith that are acceptable to God. We noted that Paul points out here that true believers rejoice in the Lord, true believers exercise discernment, true believers worship in the Spirit, and true believers glory in Christ Jesus. And finally, we noted that true believers put no confidence in the flesh. And this morning, we're going to pick it up in verses 4, 5, and 6. Let's read there, please. Paul writes, Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day, the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. In these verses, Paul presents seven credentials of false faith that do not impress God. I know over the period of time that we've been together, I've shared a little bit with you about uh, my background, my family. Uh, I have something I like to mention and and share with you, uh, something that took place uh, a few years back. Uh, I had the privilege of growing up with two brothers and a sister, and we grew up in northern New Jersey in dairy country, and uh, most of my growing years, we lived uh, on a 120-acre farm, and as I grew older into the high school years, my parents sold uh, 100 of those acres and a big farmhouse and kept 20 acres and built a home. And uh, during that time, my parents, my dad was employed by DuPont uh, in Pompton Lakes, New Jersey, in an explosive uh, area. And 
uh, God was working in my dad's heart and, and seeming to be leading him out of uh, secular employment into some type of ministry. And one day there was a huge explosion at uh, DuPont and uh, it w- took place in the area of the, of the plant where my dad was working. And all the workers that were there were asked to line up. And they lined up and roll call was, was given. And as they were standing there, uh, one of my dad's best friends was, did not answer his name. And he was one of uh, two men who were killed in that huge explosion. And uh, God used that, that incident to culminate in my dad's thinking, I've been resisting what God wants me to do. God has been leading me uh, out of here to go into ministry, and, and I balked at it. And right there in that line, my dad said to the Lord, I'm done fighting. I'm, I'm going to do what you want me to do. And, and he and Mom uh, began to make preparations. They put their house up for sale, the new one that had been built. And I was getting ready to go off to college, and my parents decided to do the same. I went to uh, Columbia Bible College in South Carolina. My parents went further north uh, to uh, Practical Bible Training School in uh, Binghamton, New York. And they studied together for three years and went into missionary work together. Uh, My dad always said uh, it took me four years to learn what he learned in three. Uh, My school was a four-year school, and I finished, and... I went to be with them, and then I was drafted and was sent overseas. While I was overseas, I received word that my dad uh, had, had suffered a stroke and was in serious condition, and Red Cross sent me back. I had about three months left in the military at that time, so I was relocated to central New York at the Seneca Army Depot. Uh, just a couple days after getting back, my, my dad went to be with the Lord, and my, my brothers and sister were all married and out of the home, so uh, the Army relocated me at the Seneca Army Depot, which was about 20 minutes from where my mom and dad had been living. So I finished up my military stint and was with my mom during those, those difficult days shortly after dad's death. Um, subsequently, uh, Hope and I... Uh, met right around that same time, and we were married, went to Spain, and were there over 11 years when God directed us back for a number of reasons. One was our children's education. Uh, The other was uh, things that we were seeing take place on the mission field within our mission that disturbed us. Uh, So long story short, we came back Uh, came back to one of our supporting churches, which was Seneca Community Church. They had been without a pastor for about a year, and they asked us if uh, we would begin ministry there, which we did for over 20 years. Uh, The the funny thing was, shortly after we went back to central New York, my mom was only living about 20 minutes away, and Hope's mom lived in that area as well. My mom moved away, you know. We came back, she moved. Uh, she moved down to New Jersey, uh, down near where uh, I had grown up, and then she ultimately moved out to Nevada. 
she moved out to Nevada. My, my sister was living out there, and uh, her husband. And mom was, was looking to uh, get located with one, near one of the kids, just as uh, Hope and I are doing the same. And uh, the logical choice was for her to be near my sister, my only sister. So she was out in Nevada and lived there for, I think it was about 11, 11, 12 years, something like that, until she went to be with the Lord. Well, we knew mom didn't have much, but uh, Nevada had a nice, nice setup there where they allowed people to buy a home. They knew there's no way in the world they could afford it, but they made payments for older people that my mom was able to handle, and they gave her a mortgage for like 50 years when she was uh, 75 years old. So they knew they weren't going to get it back either. It was just something that the state of Nevada does. And so my mom had a real nice home and was paying a, a mortgage that she could pay. And my sister and her, her husband helped her a lot as well. Well, my mom went to be with the Lord, and all my, my siblings and I were together for that out in Nevada. And um, we just saw her meager belongings and uh, decided what we would do with them and, and so on. And my sister said, well, we have a lawyer who will be working on the uh, will, last will and testament, and we'll, we'll get the copies of that to you. Well, it was, I don't know, a few months later, got the copies of the last will and testament in the mail, and I read through it. And I, I knew mom didn't have any inheritance. I wasn't looking at that. I was just interested in seeing what, what they had to say and so on and so forth. And, you know, I, I think I've mentioned this to you. Right at the end of the last will and testament, it said Ada Howard Robinson died bankrupt. That's what they wrote. Well, she she didn't have anything, per se. She didn't have a home that was hers. She had everything she needed. She had a car, which she was no longer able to drive. And my sister and my brothers and I made sure that she had everything she needed. She, she had good medical coverage. She, she was well cared for. But as far as the state of Nevada was concerned, she died bankrupt. And I just looked at it, and I smiled, and I said, yeah, maybe, but she was well cared for, and now she has all the glory of heaven. But you know, I think about that. I thought about that. And, and I think about Paul here. You know, think about Paul. Paul, man, he, he was a, a, a very, very powerful person in Judaism. I mean, he was well known. He was educated by the most renowned Jewish scholar of his day in Gamaliel. So Paul was really rising in the circles of Judaism. He had everything going for him to be the next Gamaliel. And he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And everything changed. Everything. You ever see that commercial where that guy's squirting that, that, that stuff into water and it flavors the water and, and it says, man, it really changes things. 
And then in the last picture, I mean, he's totally different than what he started. And he says, it changes everything. And you know, when, when Paul came to Christ, it changed everything. And when we came to Christ, it changed everything. And so what Paul had as credentials moved from the plus column to the negative column. Everything that he had counted on before became to him in his own words rubbish, trash, worthy of being thrown on the dung heap. That's Paul's words. And so everything that had been important to him, he rejects it. Paul became totally bankrupt when it came to what he was trusting in before he met Jesus Christ. So Paul writes here in verse 4, Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. And he presents here seven credentials of false faith. First of all, he says, Salvation is not by ritual. And he refers specifically in verse 5, referring to the fact that he was circumcised the eighth day. Paul begins with circumcision because that was a major, major issue for the false teachers, the Judaizers, that we learned about last week. Paul was a Jew by birth, and he followed the Jewish rituals from the very beginning. Paul, like most Jews, had really forgotten what circumcision was all about. It simply became an outward sign, uh, like a badge of courage, uh, or a badge of religiosity. And Paul points out here that he had totally lost the idea of what circumcision was all about. Because as we see it in the Old Testament, and as it was continued to be presented in the New Circumcision was actually a picture to the Jewish people of the need of cleansing, but it had become a badge of righteousness. So Paul, right off the bat, he makes it very, very clear. Circumcision and any other ritual is worthless when it comes to genuine salvation. And you know, we can be guilty of some of this same uh, type of thinking, for the Jewish people, it was circumcision. For Roman Catholics, it is the Mass. For Protestants, it can be the observance of the Lord's Supper or baptism. And that's why we need to be very, very careful about what we do and why we do it. We need to understand, you have heard me say that baptism is very, very, very important for a believer. But why is it important? Because it is something we do as ritual to make sure we're saved. That's what circumcision had become for the Jewish people. They had lost the meaning of it. And we need to make sure we understand the meaning of baptism. That it is a picture of the fact that we have died with Christ, that we have been raised together with him, and that we walk in newness of life. It is not what happens when we're baptized. Baptism is a picture of what has already taken place through faith in Christ. And so we need to make sure that we're not depending on any ritual, any ritual, 
for salvation. Paul says salvation is not by ritual. Secondly, Paul says that salvation is not by race. He mentions that he is of the nation of Israel. Paul was by birth a member of God's chosen people. He inherited all the blessings of being a part of the covenant nation. Paul was a physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a heritage that the Jewish people really relied on right along with circumcision for salvation. But racial heritage, like any other ritual, is not going to save us. So salvation is not by ritual, it is not by race. And then Paul Paul points out that salvation is not by rank. He refers in verse 5 to the being of the tribe of Benjamin. Now the tribe of Benjamin was a very prominent tribe among Israel. It was the tribe from which the first king of Israel was chosen. King Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was the younger of the two sons who were born to Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. And because of the first king of Israel being from the tribe of Benjamin, because Benjamin was born of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, the tribe of Benjamin was considered better than all the others. And when the promised land was divided among 12 tribes, Jerusalem was placed within the area of property that was given to Benjamin. And when the kingdom divided and 10 went one way and 2 went the other way, it was the tribe of Benjamin and Judah that went under the Davidic, David's part, of the divided kingdom. So the tribe of Benjamin was considered the elite of the elite. And you may, have, uh, you may recall the story of Queen Esther and Mordecai when the children of Israel were being threatened with extinction. It was Mordecai who stepped up, a Jew. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. So the tribe of Benjamin was considered the best or the elite of the tribes. And Paul says, regardless, yes, I am of the tribe of Benjamin, but salvation is not by rank. And then Paul goes on to say that salvation is not by tradition. He talks about being a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As Paul grew to manhood, he strictly maintained his Jewish heritage. He remained firmly committed to the language, the traditions, and the customs of his ancestors. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and he was known for being a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was known for being a very dedicated Jewish man. But Paul points out, salvation is not by tradition. And then he moves on to say, salvation is not by religion. He talks about, as to the law, 
a Pharisee. He was not just a Jewish man. He was a Pharisee. And as you read through the, the time of the Gospels and see during the life of Jesus, and as you read through the epistles, and you see what the Word of God has to say about the Pharisees, the Pharisees were a very devout, legalistic system within Judaism. I mean, these were the guys who, who added things to the law. They were guardians of the, what they considered the truth. They would be today equivalent to those who we would see as legalists. Those who, man, they made sure that every dot was, uh, I was dotted, that every T was crossed. They made sure that people obeyed the law, that they adhered to the law, but their problem was they added to it. And they interpreted it in such a way that it was ludicrous. For example, the Old Testament pointed out that you should not carry a burden on the Sabbath. Talking about the Sabbath, uh, in Sunday school we're learning about the difference between the Sabbath and the Lord's Day. Well, the Jewish people, particularly the Pharisees, brought the legalistic mandates of the Old Testament into the New. And not only did that, they do that, but they added to it. Because the Old Testament, just one example, the Old Testament pointed out that you should not carry a burden on the Sabbath. Well, the, Jewish, the Pharisees, among typical things like carrying grain for your oxen or carrying water for your cows, whatever, they, they said all that was wrong. And they carried it over to say that a person with a prosthetic leg would be carrying a burden and therefore was not to do any walking on the Sabbath. A person who had an artificial eye. Back in those days, they, they used wood to replace an eye that had been lost. To have a wooden eye was to carry a cargo, to carry a burden on the Sabbath. They added ludicrous, ridiculous things to the law. But they did it with zeal because they were believing themselves to be guardians of the truth. And Paul identifies with those people. He says, as to the law, a Pharisee. It's important to understand that no pastor, no priest, no minister, no monk, no theological scholar or member of a devout sect can achieve salvation by any list of rules or regulations. And that's what Paul is saying. So salvation is not by religion. And then Paul says salvation is not by sincerity. And he writes in verse 6, as to zeal a persecutor of the church. He was so zealous for what he believed to be the truth that he literally murdered people who followed the way of Jesus Christ. He believed them to be going against the truth of the Word of God, the truth of the Old Testament, 
the truth as he understood it as a Pharisee and as a Jewish man and as a Hebrew of the Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin. And so in his zeal, he persecuted the church, believing it was the right thing. And Hope and I were, were commenting just the other day, <clears throat> we saw something in the news that referred back to Hitler. And then we remembered uh, a movie that we had watched uh, on Netflix about uh, Hitler's rise to power and so on and so forth. <clears throat> and he was quoted as saying, because many different attempts were taken on his life, none of them successful. Uh, there were several assassination attempts. And you know what he would say? After one of the last attempts that nearly, nearly took his life, he said it was divine providence that spared him. Divine providence? Well, he, he needed to stop and think a little bit about what he was doing. I mean, he was, he was murdering millions of those who were the people of God. And yet he stated that it was divine providence that spared his life. Well, he may have been sincere, but he was sincerely wrong. Paul was sincere, but he was sincerely wrong. And you know, there are a lot of sincere people in the world, aren't there? We, we know a lot of sincere people. And we need to be loving and gracious and yet clear when we point out to them, you know, sincerity really isn't enough. And I believe I've referred to a, a tract I saw years ago. I, I, I really like this little tract. It was uh, Charlie Brown. And he's on the pitcher's mound. And, you know, his hat always turned a little to the side. He's on the pitcher's mound. And the outside of the track says, how can we lose? And you open up, and his team is losing 99 to nothing. That was before the mercy rule. His, his, his team's losing 99 to nothing. And the front says, how can we lose? And on the inside it says, when we're so sincere. There are a lot of people who are very sincere, but who are lost. And we need to, again, lovingly, tactfully, but clearly point out, sincerity doesn't do it. Paul was sincere, but he was killing and persecuting those who followed Jesus Christ. And you know, I, I really believe that <clears throat> Paul, Paul certainly understood the biblical truth of forgiveness and acceptance with God. But I believe Paul carried the burden of what he had done with him throughout his life. I, I do. Because he states in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So he understood he was forgiven, 
He understood that God was not holding that against his account. He understood that. But inside, he also realized, man, in my sincerity and in my zeal, I was killing followers of Christ. I am not fit to be an apostle. That was his struggle. God thought otherwise because God did choose him as an apostle. And you know, I think we could all say the same thing, couldn't we? I'm, I'm not fit to be a Christian. I'm not fit to be a pastor. I'm not. I am not even fit to be called a child of God. But by the grace of God, we are children of God. And by the grace of God, we are his ambassadors in different areas of life. By the grace of God, I have the privilege of being a pastor. Is it anything I deserve? No. It is all God's grace. And I, I just echo the words of Paul. I am the least of whatever I am and not fit to even be called a child of God. But by his grace, I am. Can you identify with that? We know ourselves, don't we? We know what goes on inside our hearts. We know the struggles we go through. We know the things that we say that we shouldn't. We know the things that we do that we shouldn't. We know the things that we should say that we don't say and the things that we don't do that we should do. And we know the thoughts we have. And we can conclude with Paul, man, I'm the least of the children of God. I'm not fit to be called a child of God. But by the grace of God, I am. And so we, we embrace his forgiveness. And we humbly say, yes, I, I'm not worthy of this, but by his grace, he has done this. And so I dedicate my life to him. Now, <clears throat> there may be many, many people around us who are very devout, very committed, very dedicated, very zealous, very sincere. But we need to lovingly make sure they know the truth and are not depending on their sincerity to make them acceptable before God. And so what Paul previously had in his plus column, he moved it over to the negative column thinking, man, I cannot trust in this. This will not make me acceptable to God. <clears throat> and then lastly, Paul points out that salvation is not by legalistic righteousness. He states in verse 6, as to the righteousness which is in law found blameless. Before his conversion, Paul really conformed to the righteousness in the law. He, was, he states that he was found blameless. Can you imagine? He says he was found blameless when it came to the law. Man, he, he obeyed it. And it was known that he was like that. If it said dot it here, he did. If it said cross it, t, cross it here, he did. If it said do this, 
He did it. If it said, don't do this, he didn't do it. In regard to the righteousness which was in the law, based on the law of the Old Testament, he states that he was blameless. Wow. That, that's what we would refer to as, man, that person really is a holy person. That person is really a godly person. But Paul says, I wasn't righteous. I wasn't holy. I wasn't godly. I wasn't any of those things. Those things which I had in my plus column before are all negatives. <clears throat> and keeping the law, even though I kept it blamelessly, didn't enable me to achieve anything as far as acceptance with God. Now Paul seemingly had it all. Ritual, race, rank, tradition, religion, sincerity, legalistic, righteousness. Yet he saw all these credentials, these achievements, these privileges, and rights as useless in regard to salvation. Now they had their value. I don't want to be misunderstood about that. These things had their value, but they were useless in regard to salvation. And anything that we <clears throat> can claim apart from faith alone, by grace alone, in Jesus Christ alone, is useless in regard to salvation. When it comes to salvation, it is by God's grace, through faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and in Him alone, that saves us. Nothing else. Absolutely nothing. And Paul makes that very, very clear here. I, I had a classmate in college brilliant guy. He was, he was brilliant. He, he never had to crack a book. Uh, maybe you've read some of his books. His name is Philip Yancey. Uh, he's, he's written a number of books. Um, frankly, they're a little over my head. Um, Hope reads them and tells me what they're about. But uh, <laughs> um, it, I, I've tried to read some of his, but it just, just doesn't communicate with me. I'm more simple guy. I, I like the John MacArthur's and the Chuck Swindoll's and that kind of thing. But that's not to say he's not a good author. He's a great author. And, and he's written a book entitled What's So Amazing About Grace? And uh, maybe you've read it. Um, it. It's probably an excellent book. Uh, I couldn't get beyond the title. I, I didn't like it. Uh, but that's, that's just me. Okay? Um, but, you know, you, you, you think about what's so amazing about grace. We can hear the strains of amazing grace over and over and over again on the, on the news, can't we? Uh, ever since 9-11, particularly, ever since 9-11, it, it seems as if every, every major... Um, remembrance of 9-11 or every remembrance of uh, what happened in Oklahoma City or 
travesties that have taken place that have an anniversary and we recall them, it seems as if the strains of amazing grace are being played. I've had funerals, uh, several funerals, where uh, a bagpipe uh, player would come and play amazing grace uh, because of a fireman who had, had died and, and was, uh, we were having his funeral or a police officer who had died, we were having his funeral. Amazing grace. And then I had other funerals. It wasn't a policeman, wasn't a, a fireman, uh, a person like you and me, but they wanted Amazing Grace played by a bagpipe. And Amazing Grace was played. We can hear the strains of Amazing Grace over and over and over again throughout the United States in situations like this. And I don't mean to say this in a, in a degrading manner. It's very, very possible that people who listen to the strains of Amazing Grace or even request them in a funeral or for a loved one have really no idea what grace is. And I'm, and I'm not saying that in, in a degrading manner. But it's very, very possible that people have no idea what grace is all about. And maybe we have even some confusion about grace. Uh, I think the, the best explanation I've heard, and it's a very simple one, is that grace is getting what we do not deserve. God giving us what we do not deserve. And mercy is not getting what we do deserve. So grace, uh, I mean, God just lovingly bestows us with life and breath and the, the beauty of, of marriage and family and loved ones and church family and work, jobs, health, all these things, God blesses us with these things. That's grace. We get what we don't deserve. And grace manifested in salvation, oh my, getting what we don't deserve. Forgiveness. Cleansing. Reconciled to God. A relationship with the living God. That's grace. That's amazing grace. Wouldn't you say? And then there's mercy. Mercy is not getting what I do deserve. <clears throat> I am, and you are too. We are nothing but hell-deserving sinners. We are. We are hell-deserving sinners by birth, and we're hell-deserving sinners by the things we do after we're born. But God's mercy says, I'm not going to give you what you deserve. In my grace, I'm going to reach down and save you, and in my mercy, I am not going to give you the hell you deserve. I'm going to give you heaven that you don't deserve. Isn't that a beautiful thought? Really? And 
That's what salvation is. Salvation, Paul points out, it's not by ritual, race, rank, tradition, religion, sincerity, legalistic righteousness. We could never attain it. Salvation is by grace. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And so, if anyone had things to trust in and rely on for salvation, it was Paul. And he moved it all from the plus column to the negative column. And when it came to the things that he had so embraced before meeting Jesus, he rejected all that, and yes, he became spiritually bankrupt so that the grace of God could take over and give him life. As long as we hold on to anything in our spiritual plus column, we're not solely trusting in the salvation that comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And I've only had the privilege of knowing you folks for about 19 months. And, and I don't know what all of you have had in your hearts and in your minds as far as salvation, but let, let me lovingly say to you, regardless of how sincere you may be, if you're trusting in anything, anything, other than faith alone, in Christ alone, you're not genuinely saved. And you need to open your heart to Jesus Christ, if you never have. And by the grace of God, His amazing grace, by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, embrace the salvation He gives you. Paul said, that's the only way. The Word of God said, that's the only way. And I have to, to be a faithful proclaimer of truth. I have to lovingly say, it's the only way. So if you've never embraced it, please do. And if you have any questions about this, please speak with me or with someone else that, that, that you love and, and you know they love you and they care about you. And with a, with a true heart, they'll say, brother, sister, you're, you're on the wrong path. You need to embrace Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father, we thank you for this beautiful passage. We thank you for the testimony of Paul. And Lord, we know, man, if anybody had reason to trust in, his, in the flesh, like he himself says right here, he would be the person. But Lord, he shows us how we need to reject all that and by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, embrace the truth. 
and through your amazing grace, experience genuine salvation. If there's anyone here, Lord, who's never done that, we pray that they would understand and, and speak with someone and, and really make things right with you. And Lord, for those of us who, by your grace, have done that, have taken that step, we pray that we would have hearts overflowing with gratitude and that we would never return to the things of the law. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> now, in a moment, we're, we're going to go to prayer. But um, the first thing I'd like to do 